you point out that there are things we could call proto-fascism, and I would concur with that before the 1930s. And, you know, if, if capitalism begins, if we want to mark it as beginning with the enclosure, I mean, just the expropriation of the commons is has elements of like, you know, of, uh, of fascism. I mean, in the same way that it, you know, and, and it fuels imperialism is this because cap, capitalism creates dislocations and imperialism is, it serves multiple purposes of it. So this enclosure movement gives rise, which I, which you, is the beginning and real, you know, origins of fascism involves expro using the power of the state to expropriate people and enforce that expropriation through violence. I mean, that's pretty fascistic. And then as a result of the um, problems it causes, you do have things like the poor laws. So it actually creates a kind of liberal, one of the earliest, what you could call liberal responses to capitalism, which were very stingy, but they were like, they, they served a certain purpose. And it also fuels the um, colonialism. I mean, they go, it fuels the, uh, domi the, um, the domination and conquest of Ireland. And then they just, of course, go further west, settle at Jamestown. But these are for capitalist enterprises to sell tobacco, you know? Yeah. And it's uh, it's tricky to and to do that they have to kill Indians, which is you know fascistic kind of an enterprise of just like we need to slaughter people for crops grown for export markets, like not even kill people to live, like hunter gatherers and then more quote unquote civilized people have been doing for like centuries and centuries. But this is like for market purposes. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, and that's one of the reasons that it's uh, really important to see. You know, fascism as a concept and a term emerged and was minted in Italy in the interwar period. And even Mussolini and the other theorists of fascism said, you know, it didn't emerge as a concept first. It emerged as a practice and a certain organizing practice that was partially modeled on the success of the, the Bolsheviks and certain ways in which the Bolsheviks were organizing. I say that not because the fascists and the Bolsheviks should be compared in any like coherent manner, but because there were ways in which the Bolsheviks were organizing both within the parliamentary democracy and in underground organizations. And this gave birth to what Gramsci theorized as the two faces of faces of fascism. You have the parliamentary face and you have the kind of the militia face, if you will. And when you look at the case of the United States and settler colonialism or what the bourgeois economists refer to as primitive accumulation of, of capital of capitalism, you have both state violence and parastate violence, right? So parallel structures that are often, they work in hand in glove with the state or the state allows them to act with impunity. And so you had settler militias that could bring back scalps to the U.S. government for money, right? Here's a case of the state financially supporting parastate structures that impose the violence of extending capitalism, and they receive then handsome, handsome rewards for that. You know, Marx, uh, wrote quite poignantly on this because one of the ways in which he described the arrival of capitalism is that it came into the world dripping from head to toe from every pore with blood and dirt. And he explains in great detail how this was the uh, land theft, uh, slavery, colonial genocide, all of this can be understood, obviously, again, the concept of fascism was minted in the early 20th century. But if we understand it as the mobilization of state and parastate violence in the service of imposing or intensifying capitalist social relations, 
then all of these forms of colonial violence would need to be recognized as, we could call them proto-fascist if we want, because the word wasn't around at the time, but as dialecticians and materialists, we should recognize the primacy of practice and the primacy of the material world and make our concepts as flexible as possible so that they can actually try to you know, index the actual world. And of course, Aimé Césaire is one of the thinkers who quite poignantly highlighted the fact that, well, there's always been there's always been concentration camps. It's just that they were in the colonies. And so the term fascism and the kind of disgust at what the Nazis were able to do is linked to the fact that this was happening on European soil and that we can't simply... Uh, you know, make a distinction between kind of worthy and unworthy victims of fascism and erase the colonial uh, fascism that has been inherent within the deep history of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it's often remarked upon by, you know, observers and historians and social scientists that the U.S. is is bourgeois from the beginning. But according to this formulation, a corollary to that would be that the U.S. was fascist from the beginning which sounds jarring to an American to say, and yet, you know, you you land, they land, and uh, Indians start dying, and uh, they, you know, there's pe there's an issue of peace with the Indians and how expensive it is to fight wars with them, and uh, that you know that ends up leading to the the adoption of slavery. I mean, this this idea, this fact that the the indentured servants were no longer so reliable as a labor source, and they were going and starting wars with the Indians, and this was problematic and the solution that they came up with was african slaves and so this is and this is prior of course to the because you had two two very expensive debacles in one in new england which is like you know metacomet king philip's war and then bacon's rebellion these are in the late 1600s and uh this is this is the prelude to the massive adoption of slavery because the you know the idea of it being a, a repository for uh, Europe's excess population was an indentured servitude was not really feasible because there just wasn't enough land because the guys kept surviving their indentures and this was the, and then they would go west and cause problems expensive wars and the British Empire didn't like that so it's like this these other areas I mean the solution to this problem for Brit England's capitalist empire uh, with the colonies in in America was uh, slavery that, that was well okay we've killed some Indians but it's kind of expensive to keep killing them. And maybe we're better off with the colonists on the coast anyway, because they're less autonomous. Uh, and then so slavery is slavery is the solution. So this is there from the very beginning. I mean, this is I, I think really it's not something that is uh, becomes commonsensical to think this way in the U.S., but it's actually quite uh, illuminating. I think. I mean, it, it, would you yeah. go? Would you just? How would you? Would you argue with the, that idea of, of the U.S. as being in in key ways? a fascistic enterprise from the beginning if we can look at it dispassionately and not have all these connotations of the word or that it seems hyperbolic like the essence of it is there well i think that it is helpful to highlight the two different modalities of capitalist rule or at least the dominant modalities of capitalist rule and that one of them is bourgeois democracy or more specifically what dominico lasordo refers to as master race democracy and there is a segment of the population within the history of the U.S. settler colony that has benefited from certain uh, rights 
that, of course, have shifted significantly over time. Originally, this was the white settler class, not even, the, of course, the working class. They were the land-owning, propertied class. They were the founding fathers, so to speak, right, who set up the bourgeois democracy in order to serve their own purposes. In fact, it wasn't really, strictly speaking, a bourgeois democracy. It was a republic that was directly opposed to democracy, as we know from the Federalist Papers, um, and the battles over the Constitution in which it was established that the you know, and, and, and if you read the, the convention that took place here in Philadelphia and all of the debates, one of the things that was very clear in Philadelphia when the Constitution was signed, that the worst element of the state constitutions was identified as its democratic element, meaning the element in the House of Representatives. And it was to be guaranteed that the federal constitution was not to follow that same, that same path. So master race democracy does mean that for one class and one segment of society, there are certain rights that are usually maintained. Um, and those can also be fought over because over time within class struggle from below in the U.S. context, those rights arguably to a certain extent have been extended as minimal and formal as they are. While at the same time, there's another mode of governance that has always been operative, and that is what we could call, you know, it's the repressive mechanism of imposing capitalism. Call it fascism, call it authoritarianism. You know, we shouldn't be too, like, overly semantic about the terms. We should define how these practices operate on the ground. And one really interesting example of this, to come back to the instance of slavery, is that if we look at something like the Nazi Third Reich, which no, I don't think, you know, there are very few U.S. Americans who would say that the Nazi Third Reich, like, wasn't fascist, right? Let's look at how they conceptualized what they were doing. And one thing that's important to recognize is that, and Hitler himself said this, right? In Mein Kampf, he said that the most advanced racial state in the history of humanity was the United States, and the Nazis studied racial statecraft in the United States, meaning the legal uh, apparatus which distinguished between those who had the right to have rights and those who did not have the right to have rights, blacks and immigrants and, uh, uh, well, undesirables in general, right? And they modeled Nazi uh, the Nazi kind of legal platform on the United States and in particular on its racial laws. And they conceived of the colonial rampage to the East, because that was the principal war that was being waged, was to take over the Soviet Union and extend the Lebensraum or the living realm of the Germans to the East on the U.S. expansion to the West and the slaughter of the indigenous population. So you see it very clearly in the case of Germany. This was a colonial enterprise that was actually modeled on the dominant or the emergent dominant empire of the time, which was the U.S. empire. And you see that as well in Italy with its colonial rampage in Africa. And so the colonial dimension to fascism is not something that was invented by the Nazis or the fascists in Italy. It's something that was because they were late to the colonial game, both Germany and Italy, they were playing catch up with the other imperial powers. And they were attempting to do exactly the same types of things that these other empires had done. And if we describe that as fascism, then we have to recognize that it's an integral aspect of the, the capitalist world. You have bourgeois democracy for the privileged few. 
uh, if they qualify, uh, you know, racially uh, at the level of their gender and sexuality, lots of other things that you have to, uh, boxes you have to tick in order to qualify as a member of the master race. And if you don't, and particularly if you're insurgent and you reject the forms of capitalism being imposed, then you will be confronted by the brutality of state and parastate violence in order to keep you in your lane. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire.